Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. August is dead, so it's spooky season. I don't care anymore. It's Halloween for the next two months. Really nothing out in the theaters really oh. that I wanted to see. Yeah, this is just a bad time for movies. It's still hot. Yeah. Why don't you just sit inside and watch horror movies over and over again until Halloween hits? Uh, that's kind of what I've been doing as well. <laughs> I, uh, I'm i kind of jump-starting Halloween with this episode. We're going to talk about a pretty classic horror franchise that's been running for most of our lives. Excited to get into that. We also had a movie night at my house the other night. Yeah. Uh, James made the selection for that. Oh, I made y'all watch uh, Breathless, not the original, the remake uh, with Richard Gere from, I think, 1981 or something but uh i had actually started the movie before i came over to brandon's and immediately i was like oh holy shit this is really cool and so we kind of just kept watching it at your place and uh i think it's one of the coolest sexiest movies from that time period that i can really think of it's just like the music is cool he's driving like nice corvettes around you know it's i just thought everything about it was just cool i absolutely loved it and i'm I'm not like a huge fan of the first breathless so like me neither i didn't expect to even like it very much but it's so good (laughs) yeah i don't know what i was expecting but this is like straight up kind of like 50s all-american i don't know i thought it was going to be like an art house sort of thing because the original is known as you know for the jump cuts and for starting the French new wave, but it really is like a straight, like a hundred percent American feeling film. What's interesting is like, we've been talking a lot lately about erotic thrillers in the eighties and how they're just basically noir, like redone. And this one goes through a different cycle where like it was a noir homage already in the sixties. Like the, uh, the French new wave stuff was basically like copying American crime pictures and being like, Oh, I want to do, really exciting quick cut like handheld shots on the street mm-hmm. uh like crime films and breathless is definitely that and then it gets cycled a second time into this i want to say erotic thriller style yeah. redo of it and it's so hot it's so fun the neon is like blinding it's almost like reclaiming that genre back from like the art house circles. USA USA yeah. oh god <laughs> um but like in this case yes um <laughs> Yeah, Richard Gere is so charming in this movie. Um, He's a dipshit, but in the best way possible, where you just can't take your eyes off of him, and you just want to see him, you know, doing weirder crap, shirtless, or dressed up in his sky uniform, or in his ruffled, you know, red silk shirt, um, just being filthy. Oh, those plaid pants. The stud belt. (laughs) And sometimes he's pantsless, too. Yeah, you never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Really muscular ass. Yeah. Yeah. And you do see his junk for a little bit, too. Yeah. If, if that... Flaccid. Let's yeah, make that clear. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I felt like... Sorry I, to disappoint It you. was so necessary. I think if he didn't flash his wiener so much that it wouldn't have... It, it really, like, I don't know, brought his character together for me because it yeah. kind of... You know, showed his like his you know fuck boyness a little more. Oh yeah, it, it was awesome. I, I just loved it. Like when I think of Richard Gere, I think of like I don't know arbitrage or some Knights like, and Rodanthe. Right, some like <laughs> he always plays some sort of businessman whose yeah. wife is cheeky. He kind of like Michael Douglas. He's just kind of mm-hmm. known to play that role, and this was him doing just a completely unhinged. What if there performance? A Michael Douglas breathless out there. What would that look like? Ugh gross i don't know uh, yeah. <laughs> he's got an extra layer of like sleaze he's and, like, not a hottie yeah <laughs> but it'd be great if he would do something like this but i think james you had brought it up before we started watching it how it's sort of like wild at heart oh yeah oh my it, god this was he was so nicholas cage and wild at heart but before nicholas cage was wild at heart like that same kind of just elvis over the top elvis yes yeah. there's just something about that that is so appealing to me I know it's like kind of gross and we were joking like USA, USA, but it is like (laughs) that, that like the muscle cars with the doing the Elvis impression with the cool like fifties music. It's just like, 
I love that aesthetic so much. It's rock and roll, man. It's rock and roll. I didn't it's even great. know it was set in the 80s for the first like 30 minutes. I was like, oh, yeah, he's like a 50s fuckboy. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, it's in, it's he's in college. More, it's it reminded era. me a little bit about um, Trouble in Mind, how it like it's set in the 80s, but yeah. it feels like you're in the 50s. And it, it's that whole, you know, bringing noir into this like Americana universe um plus he uh robs bruce valanche while he's taking a shit which is quite a scene bruce valanche's purse <laughs> wait did we confirm that bar? that was actually bruce we did yeah yeah mdb and it's listed bruce valanche yeah. as man with purse brandon searched it live <laughs> immediately <laughs> uh well i'm glad y'all enjoyed it oh it was the best cool what else have you been watching lately um a lot of horror movies great Love not it. just the ones we're going to talk about today um so there's pretty infamous list called the British nasties, um, the video nasties, the video nasties. It, it's like a list of basically banned films that were banned in Britain in the what mid eighties. Yeah. Like the VHS, like video store era. It was like little kids can get their hands on any movie, you know, there's right. no, like ticket takers stopping them from watching this stuff. And, and a lot of these I had already seen from our college days of going to major video and finding Blood most feast. depraved, yeah, Blood Feast and Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> and so, anyway, it's a list of about, I think, 70 films. Oh my God. And I've been slowly just working through. Now, some, some of them I just noped because there's a lot of like Nazi exploitation, softcore porn stuff, which I'm like, no interest. But I found a few like hidden gems. Um, what's the one with the. Oh, it has a terrible title. What's it about? It's about an aunt who is in love with her. Uh, oh, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Yeah. Sorry. I could not remember. <laughs> I choose not to remember that name because it is the worst. I love it. It's so It's like bad. a nursery rhyme. Yeah. Oh, God. I, that was, um, I watched it years ago and like immediately fell in love with it. It's so good. And there, that like subtext of like the gay panic reagan era stuff was really interesting to me and it just is so weird the way that she treats him and caresses him and it goes pretty extreme with that but uh i don't know it was like definitely a hidden gem from the 80s uh video nasty era so that's probably the best one i've seen of of those what's like the basic plot of that one i mean it's kind of like um basically this guy's parents die at the very beginning and so his aunt now takes care of him and it jumps forward to he's a teenager and he loves to play basketball and he's she obviously has the hots for him and it's a really (laughs) inappropriate relationship and there's a murder this cop who i thought was going to be the hero of the film very quickly is like a villain because he's such a homophobe so it's kind of like a murder mystery, but it's really about like their relationship and how fucked up it gets. So the movie itself is not homophobic? No. Interesting. So it's like about homophobia. Right. You were talking about like like a grindhouse kind of thing. I was like, I, I figured that it was just playing with that stuff, but irresponsibly. Well, so what what happens is that she doesn't want him to leave to go to college. So she orchestrates this crime claiming that this guy who's coming over to repair something raped her uh and so she can kill him and that's going to be her reason that you know he has to stay behind and not go to college um but then this cop who is a very clear homophobe finds out that the guy that supposedly raped her raped her was gay and having a an affair with the gym teacher and so rumors start spreading about the boy and his gym teacher and the cop is, you know, says some really derogatory, nasty stuff to the, he just is painted as a total piece a of shit. Yeah. yeah. A huge villain. And in the end, he's kind of the final death in the movie. He's like the very last person. And you're like cheering it on. And you're like, hell yeah. So I don't know. It's definitely about that. It's coming out from that angle. That's I thought cool. that was cool. That's very surprising for that era. Yeah. Anyway, so what about you, Brittany? What you been watching? I watched The Burning Bed again for like the 80th time <laughs> recently. Is that I haven't the seen Farrah Fawcett? Yes. Oh, that was one of my mom's favorite movies. It's back a in mom the day. movie. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was, 
I was raised on so many movies like The Burning Bed, where it's like, never trust the police and men are shit sometimes. What was the one you watched <laughs> recently where Julianne Moore gets killed in like the greenhouse? Uh, oh, um, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle? Yeah, I think of it in the same category as that. Oh, totally. So, well, this is based on a true story. And, well, it stars Farrah Fawcett, and she gets married young to this guy, and then, you know, they get married, she starts having kids, and he's, like, super abusive, and she eventually, like, leaves him, but she starts, like, getting back in his realm, like, he gets in this bad car accident, and then she feels guilty, and she's like, okay, I'll help you, and then he just continues to, like, beat the shit out of her. But in the beginning, you know that he gets burnt to a crisp in his bed. So the whole time you're like, burn him, burn him. (laughs) (laughs) And you just keep waiting. Like, when is she going to burn him up? Um, And it does happen. So she burns him up. You know, don't fuck with her. She'll she'll burn you while you sleep. USA. USA. (laughs) And in real life, I think the woman that did this got like 10 years in prison and she remarried and had her own family and everything like that so her her name was like francine hughes i think was her name but it's just one of those like classic like lifetime movies and it was during this time where farrah fawcett played in several films that were similar to this she played also in um extremities which is this bizarre like rape revenge movie and also small sacrifices where she's like um, um plays the true it's a true story and she plays this woman who uh, murders her kids to have her lover love her more whoa it's awesome yeah i think it'd be interesting to like if you ever want to do like a, a triple farrah fawcett um marathon i would highly recommend the burning would we bed get the, our wings done like the hair flip that oh. she has well <laughs> she doesn't have her wings in these um it's more like really really short bangs which we're gonna talk about some bangs later oh god oh um, no <laughs> And just very, you know, scraggly, um, scraggly looking 80s hair. It's not voluminous at all. And the reason I watched The Burning Bed is I watched Mississippi Burning on Tubi. And then Tubi immediately brought every movie up where it's like, here's like 80 other movies that have the word burning in it. Fire, fire, fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, holy shit, The Burning Bed. So I, I put The Burning Bed on. So <laughs> that's how I got to it. And it came back into my world. So it's on Tubi. Um, catch it while it's hot, literally. <laughs> so that's what I've been kind of watching. Uh, what about you, Brandon? I watched something lifetimey last night. I, I watched the prequel to Orphan, Orphan First Kill. I saw that. You saw it? Yeah. I was a little disappointed. Um, it's been billed kind of as like this year's malignant. And like, oh no. The movie Barbarian that's coming out in a couple of weeks also has been called that a bunch. I think people are looking <laughs> for the next like we just trash want, pleasure. We want more. What's his name again? Gabriel. Gabriel. Yeah. <laughs> we just want him oh, so much. Hannah actually sent me this morning. A screen grab from that barbarian movie. I hadn't I hadn't heard about it, but it sounds the awesome. The buzz is good. I'm excited. Yeah. But I was also excited for Orphan First Kill, and I thought it was fine. Fine, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's good, but it's not like what I expected. I saw the twist coming like in the first five minutes, and I'm glad that they didn't do it at the end. Like the the twist is like revealed about halfway through. Yeah. I'm like, all right, at least we can deal with the consequences, and I'm not just sitting here waiting for it to happen. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing about it is Isabel Furman, who played the uh, overgrown child uh, undercover in the first movie, has returned 13 years later to play an (laughs) earlier version of that character. So like through everyone else in her literally wearing platform shoes and um, a child, I believe, body double who shot from the back a lot. Uh, she's like got this stature of a eight to 10 year old girl. And then you see her face and she's fully like a 26 year old. So some Aileen, Aileen Clifford. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, so that never stops being weird. And you know, it's got pretty much the same setup as the first one where she like insinuates herself in this family, pretends to be their lost child in this case. And like basically tries to fuck the dad until all hell breaks loose. And like people die. That's like the the coolest thing about all these. Well, there's two orphan movies. I don't know if they're going to make a third one, but a lot of it is her just trying to fuck a dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we're there on that journey with Weird her. incest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. I think that another 13 years, they should make it again with it even further back in the timeline. With the same person. Yes. Because... <laughs> That's the only like weird thing about it at this point. And She's also <laughs> pulling a Benjamin button. <laughs> it's called first kill. 
but uh-huh. she is already killed before this movie starts. <laughs> and I feel like I've been betrayed <laughs> and I want to see this done again even more ridiculous. So like 2035, bring back Isabel Furman, have her play uh, <laughs> this child killer again. Uh, and I feel like the accumulative effect of that will be so fun that it doesn't even matter if the individual movies are very good. Yeah. Which is kind of how I feel about these Scream sequels we're going to talk about, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, I, a lot of individual ones on these Scream movies, I was like, this one isn't that great. But when I looked back at all five of them, I'm like, I really like the overall effect of the series. Me too. Solid. Yeah. yeah. So we are going to get into all five Scream movies, um, which have been running since 1996 and are as current as this year. With another sequel coming in March of 2023. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. So, on the train. <laughs> this is more like a temperature check of where the series is right now, I guess. Well, there, isn't there a TV series, too? Are there there, there was one, yeah. Man. Yeah. All right, it was on MTV. For a new generation. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. Oh. No, 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 no. Big no no! Big no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer, you want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back! You see, you push the laws and you end up dead. The first scream from 1996 is something I've seen so many times over the course of my life that I don't really feel the need to like go over the details with y'all. Like, it just feels like an essential part of a millennial childhood. Yeah, I like didn't even rewatch it for this episode. Why bother? I know every it's so scene. ingrained in my head that <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I realized though is I had not seen. Any of the sequels? Maybe the second one is like a blockbuster rental as a child. Like I have no memory of these sequels whatsoever. Definitely not the third and fourth one. Yeah, I do have a vague. There was a couple scenes in the second one where I was like, "Did I see that in theaters?" Like I vaguely, vaguely remember, but definitely not three and four. Four? Like I didn't even know four existed to be honest until we watched this. Um, I don't know how that like slipped my radar, but it did. When I was. 10 years old <laughs> this movie came out i must not have seen it in the theater because it was an r-rated film but i feel like pretty soon after it came out it must have been one of the first like big horror movies i ever watched the movie was like so important to me at the time hmm. and it felt like i was watching a greatest hits collection of like what horror is and when you're watching scream like it gives you a literal roadmap to the last like 20 years especially of slashers where just name dropping titles connecting the dots to what monster goes to what franchise like it tells you which one's michael myers it tells you which one's jason and Mm -hmm. like jason wasn't the killer in the first one which i had not seen a fucking jason movie for my life at that time i think i had a slightly different because i like the first movies i remember watching were horror movies and they were like nightmare on elm street and child's play yeah were the two like those were the very first two movies i remember watching so like by the time I got around, and I don't think I saw Scream when it first came out. I think, yeah, we rented it probably a couple years later. And it just, like, it felt so perfect. Like, everything I'd been watching in my young life had built up to that, like, moment. Yeah. Like, it, it had a pretty profound impact on me. Yeah, I I think I watched it probably when I was, like, around 10 um, because it came out, I was six years old when it came out. So I like caught it years later at like a movie rental rental uh, store for like a sleepover where someone's parents would let us like get some radar movies. <laughs> um, cool dad. Yeah, some, a cool dad probably got it for us. But what was so interesting is I really didn't see like the humor in it. At that time, it was just a straight up horror movie for me because mm. I was, you know, younger and I didn't like catch on to all the cool, you know, like the satire and things like that. Yeah. Until I was a little bit older. And then it kind of became a, a little bit of a different experience. But it still had it was still scary. Like it still had lots of jump scare moments and things like that. But now, I wonder how how much of the initial meta commentary yeah. stuff I got 
as a young, I mean, I'm sure I got some of it because I kind of, if you watch enough horror movies, you do understand there's implicit rules for how this genre film operates. So I, I thought that stuff was clever, but I, I don't think I necessarily got how clever it was until I was a little bit older. Yeah, because I guess the gimmick of it is it's like the first movie where the characters know that they're in a horror movie. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, okay, well, here's the things we need to do to survive. And, like, and they're aware of the rules. Yeah, you know. especially Jamie Kennedy, who works at a video store and like spells it out as often as he can. Like, this is what you do to survive. This is who's most likely the killer. And that's kind of what's fun about this series in general. They're all whodunits. And the movies kind of tease you a lot by putting the killer out in the open and like making it very clear who they are early on. If you listen to the rules and it's like, they'll trick you and like throw in some like red herrings and stuff. Well, I got but, like, thrown off. Yeah, yeah, me too. But the thing is, you know that the killer is there. Right. Um, but what's so cool about Scream and the Scream universe is it could technically like never end just because of, you know, ghost faces, not like an individual. It's it's a, a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's a cheap Halloween mask and a voice modulator. A voice changer. Yeah. Yes. And anybody could fill that role. So each individual movie is a murder mystery yeah. in itself. I don't know that the murder mystery stuff really matters that much to me anymore. I think it's really good in the first one. Like, I feel like the answer to the question of who's doing this is good. The villain speech meant so much to me as a sincere hmm. new metal shithead in the <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s that I believe for my eighth grade speech class, my speech partner and I did the final monologue oh, between no. the two people where they stab each other in the chest and we had little blood capsules that we spat out. I was such a little shithead. Wow. <laughs> How was I not wow. expelled for that? I don't know. I had a little retractable knife from Party City, too, uh, that I brought to school. <laughs> That's <laughs> You took Scream to the next level, and I love that. But, I mean, to your point, I feel like I took the movie very sincerely, and, like, I, I don't... I know that like Matthew Lillard is very funny in it. Jamie Kennedy's kind of funny in it. Forgot about Jamie Kennedy <laughs> and that he had a whole show, the Jamie Kennedy experiment. I kind of forgot about him when, until I rewatched it and I was like, Oh God. Yeah. He was a huge part of this franchise. I think uh, Malibu's most wanted is what tanked his career. Uh, right? Probably <laughs> so it was probably the best paycheck he ever got. And it kind of slowed down every <laughs> other paycheck after it. I, I love watching movies from this time period too. And seeing someone like Jamie Kennedy pop up and then, like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was a kid and how he was a big deal for, like, a few years. Yeah. Definitely some nostalgia going on. I think that's how Scream changed the industry for a while, too. Like, yes, the meta commentary of people who are, like, aware that they're in a horror movie became almost a cliche very quickly in the next, like, 10 years. But more so just the idea that, like, there was a whole industry for 10 or 15 years of these, like, high-budget, glossy, well-made, more or less, horror films with a cast of, like, every hot teen beat star of the day. So you have, like, Sarah Michelle Gellar got her own franchise. She was in the second one of these. Yeah. Uh, Valentine. Valentine had uh, Denise Richards in it. Yeah. Uh, the faculty had, like, all of those kids in it. Usher and uh, yes. Elijah Wood and, you know. I don't know. There was, like, a whole decade or so where even though I wasn't watching the Scream sequels, I was watching all of these movies that were directly influenced by this style of like slasher revival mm -hmm. that came right after this. Would one of those be, well, not it's not a horror movie, but I didn't realize how much like influence like Scream kind of had on Scary Movie. Like I know Scary Movie obviously is a spoof of horror movies, but it's a it, spoof of Scream. But too, Scream yeah. is a spoof of like slashers and then like Gary movie is a spoof of the spoof. Like it's like, why are you making fun of something that that's already, already knows making... that it's being silly? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do think part of what makes this so great though, is the writing. Like, especially the last time I watched it, I remember thinking like, damn, this script, like if you were a producer and you came across a script and scream was not around, you'd be like, Oh my God, this is the most funny, clever, well-written. And apparently this guy, Kevin Williamson, also wrote a few of the movies that we just talked about. So I know what you did last summer. The Faculty. Classic. And I know he wrote for Dawson's Creek. I do kind of get the sense, though, that Kevin Williamson didn't really want to write horror movies. Like, it was easier for him to sell horror scripts after Scream. But I feel like Scream is kind of hostile 
to the slasher as a as a genre template because he's so condescending about like how predictable they are and like well and that that was something i was reading a little bit about the production of it and i think there was a lot of pushback between him in the studio and Wes Craven cuz i think Wes Craven wanted it not to be as funny like really so he really pushed for the slasher gore stuff and i think williamson pushed for the like satirical sort of mocking yeah and what you get is like a perfect happy medium of those two things yeah because if it wasn't sincere you'd have that deadpool like winking at the audience stuff all the time it gets very annoying this has just the right flavor of that yeah it didn't feel ridiculous and it it does you're totally right and you know we'll talk about the sequels but the sequels do that in varying degrees and my favorite of the sequels is one i think that is actually hostile towards horror as a genre <laughs> where i feel like he like got his hatred of like the tropiness of it out again. oh interesting um, i think i know which one you're talking about but <laughs> we'll get into it i will say as far as like Wes craven goes you know as a kid scream meant a lot to me and it felt very smart and clever and like had it like cracked the code of horror but you know as an adult when we watched um Wes craven's new nightmare from like two years before scream I feel like he got out most of what he has to say about horror as a genre in that movie, as far as like meta commentary goes. Yeah. And that still feels smarter and more philosophical and heartfelt to me than this series does. Like this is a cataloging of tropes. It's a collection of references. You have, I I don't know exact um, references off the top of my head, but you have like, principal john carpenter or like the uh janitor is dressed like uh, and his name is fred yeah like there's very like on the surface just like full encyclopedia of slasher references from the last 20 years of horror filmmaking but i don't feel like it goes any deeper than that really the way that new nightmare does where it really gets to the core of like what horror is in modern society and like what it means to create this stuff and like id and philosophy and 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 i think too that that's because like that was more of a passion project than this. Like apparently they, they sought other directors and he didn't want to do it. And he got, and got convinced to, but with new nightmare, that definitely felt like he was super passionate. Cause that was his baby, the nightmare and Elm street series. So it felt like it was just coming from a more earnest place. And he was trying to like reclaim it and like bring it back from like the goofy, like uh, Freddy is like a Bugs Bunny type character <laughs> that had like gotten out of his hands, you know. I I mean, New Nightmare is, I think, a classic. Oh yeah, too. Well, it's very good. Probably my favorite of the series, and it's actually legitimately terrifying. And Freddy is love all those effects. Too. Oh yeah, the effects so are great. Good. I don't want to downplay Scream though. I really I. It might not like mean as much to me as that did when I was thirteen, but nothing does. I'm just I'm not listening to corn <laughs> albums and uh you know seeking Jenkos I'll never be able to afford. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's kind of um unfair to hold it up to that standard anymore. But you watch that cold open with Drew Barrymore doing like uh, the When a Stranger Calls so throwback. So amazing! It's really creepy. She's excellent in it. It's surprisingly violent in a way that like still is shocking to watch now. That's probably one of the best like 15 minutes of like cinematic history. Yeah. Is that opening with Drew Barrymore. And it's it's just mind-blowing how you know she's not this main character at all, but like she sort of is the face of Scream just from that. So it's so it was shit. so clever to put a bona fide kind of movie star in the first scene expecting Oh, you know, she's a final girl. She's She'll, on the poster. Yeah. Yes. And then she dies in the first 10 minutes. Like, I, that was so <laughs> shocking the first time I saw yeah. it. And even in that scene, he's running trivia questions over the phone with her. So they're already doing the meta commentary and like the cataloging of slasher tropes yeah, immediately. And, like, it's, and what, it's and what very gets her killed is not knowing that Jason was not the killer. I know. The first one. I think that if someone ever does that to the Swamp Flix crew, we may have like a leg up. I don't think so. Do you so. think so? I freeze up when someone die? asks me a question. Oh. <laughs> Give me a second to Google it, which does happen later in the sequels when that uh, scene is repeated. Yes. People, characters start like stalling during the trivia segment. I kept thinking Checking their phones. of yeah. like how Brandon's really into like technology horror and how like as the series progresses, like technology is just like the most current, like is used as like part of how this killer works, which I think is pretty cool. Yes, because what I'm interested in is like horror as a genre 
has this unique exploitation angle where like they are able to jump on fads of like in the moment things to try to sell a movie to kids. So it's like, you know, unfriended. It's like you spend all your time on aim and uh, not aim, but on like um, Skype. Yeah. Chatting with your buddies online. Like this is a movie that's reflecting your of the moment experience. This is your horror movie. Mm -hmm. So like scream has as a franchise, like, appointed itself to keep up with horror trends over the yes. years. So every sequel has to catalog this stuff. And I find it interesting how horror, because it's allowed to be cheaper and more exploitative in that way, on, like, just individual trends of the moment, it's actually, like, cataloging our, like, actual lived experience. Where, like, some movies are afraid to be yes. too modern because it's, like, embarrassing that, like, in six months, Skype is no longer cool. Right. It's going to be the next, like, the next thing. It's going to be and, Zoom And they want to make something that's, you know, quote, like, timeless. Yeah. Right. I love that. It's like we start with cordless phones. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get to, like, cellular phones, but, like, those Nokias. And then we eventually get to, like, a tracking app, you know? Yeah. Like, that's kind of, like, where we're at. So God knows what the next thing will be. I love that. And I love the movies like consistent with that. Maybe what doesn't work for me so much in the sequels is trying to hold on to the original crew. Like the Sydney Prescott as a final girl, yeah. uh, Deputy Dewey, uh, and like his Gale. relationship with Gail Weathers, the weather girl. Like the further oh, they hold I- on to those characters, the less I care about their lives. I actually sort of disagree. Um Part of what I thought was fascinating watching these is, and this uh, doesn't really have to do with the movies themselves, but, you know, Courtney Cox and uh, David Arquette were married yeah. and their relationship lines up perfectly with what their characters are doing. <laughs> right. So like when they met on the set of Scream, then they started dating on Scream 2. By Scream 3, they actually got married. By Scream 4, they had split up. And then at 5, they they're like, best friends now and like the movies kind of follow that arc and it was just so interesting thinking about that like their relationship reflected in these films maybe i'm a little lying a little bit when it comes to dewey in particular because after that david arquette documentary about I his like pro him. wrestling career i felt like I'm, i had this intimate knowledge yeah of i'm him. emotionally invested in his life a hundred percent yeah and I may we'll save it for the next segment, but I do think he's fantastic in the the new one. Yes. Number five. Yes. So. He's the star of five, I think. reboot a franchise from scratch anymore. The fans won't stand for it. Black Christmas, Child's Play, Flatliners, that shit doesn't work. But you can't just do a straight sequel either. Uh, you gotta build something new, but not too new, or the internet goes bug fucking nuts. It's gotta be part of an ongoing storyline, even if the story shouldn't have been ongoing in the first place. New main characters, yes, but supported by and related to legacy characters. Not quite a reboot, not quite a sequel, like the new Halloween, Saw, Terminator, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, fuck, even Star Wars. It always, always goes back to the original. Are you telling me that I'm caught in the middle of fan fucking fiction? While I may not be a huge Scream fan the way I used to be, and like I don't think all these sequels work individually, the cumulative effect of them has been really exciting to watch, specifically because... Of the movie within the movie, Stab. I'm a huge Stab fan, I gotta say. (laughs) Stab is great, and it starts in Scream 2. Like, uh, the cold open, instead of Drew Barrymore answering the phone, is um, Jada Pinkett Smith, and I can't remember the male actor she's on a date with. I can't remember his name either. Uh, But they're on a date at the premiere of the first Stab film, um, and Ghostface reappears. New person under the mask, same old shenanigans, stabs a bunch of people in the head and chest at the premiere of the movie based on the Woodsboro murders from the first scream. And that's where like the meta stuff gets interesting in this series. It's just like the further it goes along, there's this Russian nesting doll effect of the stab sequels to the point where there's more stab movies than there are scream movies at this point in universe. 
I don't specifically want to get into the plot details from each of these. I want to talk about them in general. Um, the trajectory in my mind, uh, Scream 2, Scream goes to college. <laughs> all, the, all the kids from the original movie that survived go to the same college. And uh, there's some sorority deaths. And um, there's a killer reveal at the end with a new face under the mask. Yes. The rules and the commentary are on sequels. Scream 3, Scream Goes to Hollywood, is uh, when Deputy Dewey quits his uh, police officer job and um, works as a consultant on the Stab films, on the Stab sequels. And he, and he reluctantly becomes a cop again as Ghostface uh, also goes on vacation to Hollywood and starts killing people on the set of the Stab movie. And that one supposedly is about trilogies instead of sequels, and it's about the rules of trilogies. Scream 4 is a huge gap. Scream 2 was 1997, so the year after the first one. Scream 3 was 2000, so it's within the same like regular cycle of a sequel. And then Scream 4 came out in 2011. And that one is back to Woodsboro and is basically a remake, and it's about remake rules. And then Scream 5 is the one that came out this year, so another 10-year distance between sequels. And this one was about reboots. So it's like kind of drawing an interesting distinction between the remake cycle that we were getting 10 years ago in horror industry. Whereas now it's like these legacy sequels where you have like Laurie Strode coming back to the Halloween franchise, but also there's an introduction of new kids and she's like all this like grizzled survivalist warrior who's been training to take down the original villain. I kept trying to figure out like why they didn't call like scream five, scream five. They just called it scream and it's cause it's it's a reboot. reboot. Yeah. Like the new Halloween is just called Halloween. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's clicking. And in that one, what's interesting and kind of what you were alluding to earlier is like Sydney Prescott as the final girl kind of does come back to the new one, but she's barely there. I feel like her and Gail Weathers have turned into like real housewives archetypes in the last two movies where they've got so much plastic surgery and they just do catty one-liners. Amazing. They're basically like extended cameos. I thoroughly enjoy that. I thought it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fun. But David Arquette is more of the Laurie Strode archetype in this, where he's like (laughs) grizzled. Yes. He's falling apart from being stabbed so many times. (laughs) Honestly, probably suffering from real life pro wrestling injuries. If you've seen, you cannot kill David Arquette. It's like the same register of like, my body is tight and doesn't move the way it used to, because I've like really wrecked it for your entertainment. Well, and like I said, he has also been through a rough divorce with Courtney Cox. Yes. And so, but Courtney Cox still, up, I mean, I'm basing this all on a documentary. Still, like, seems to check in on him and like yeah. care about yeah, him. Yeah, they and re- stuff. really like care good about friends. each other. Yeah. yeah. Personally, I think this series benefits from distance. So, like, two and three came like a little too soon after the first one for me. Where like, the first scream had about 20 years distance to talk about all these decades of slasher tropes from the 70s to the 90s. Um, and you know, it had a lot to digest and pick apart two and three kind of just felt like normal movie sequels to me. And they had like a couple scenes where Jamie Kennedy was invited back even after he was dead. They, in one they found that videotape. Video he's footage. got more rules. He's got to talk about the, rules. Yeah, the rules of trilogies. <laughs> and then that break from 2000 to 2011 for the fourth one, I felt like it was really sharp again and had a lot more to talk about, like how the industry had changed in those 10 years. And the new one as well. Like I feel like it had about ten more years of stuff to like really pick apart. It really talks about elevated horror and the kind of like halfway sequel, halfway reboot stuff I, we've been seeing lately. All that stuff worked for me. All the talk about like, oh, my favorite horror movie is The Babadook, and you know yeah. they explain what elevated horror is and yeah, and the reboot and all that stuff. Like it reminded me a lot of the how I felt with the original. Like, oh, this is like some very modern clever shit yeah so i guess that's kind of where i'm at i I think i we could rank these later but i I really do feel like distance helps them i don't think two or three are that interesting like i think they're fine i disagree i highly disagree i highly disagree with you i think the best one is three that is most people's least favorite And I, I actually, I, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Wow. Like, so I loved it. It's great. 
right. The thing is with Ugh. three is we get like we get Courtney Cox's worst bangs known to mankind. It's almost like spider eyelashes when people used to put on too much mascara it's in the nineties. But it's her bangs. Yes. Her <laughs> horrible bangs. That made me scream. <laughs> <laughs> and there's um an element of supernatural in it. There's ghost, like literal, like, you know, like um, Sydney Prescott's mom is like this ratchet ass ghost haunting her, and uh, Billy Loomis comes back as a ghost and in five yeah. too. Yes, yes, <laughs> the killer. From oh, the you're original. right. So yeah. I guess the that is a supernatural. A weirdly de-aged Skeet Ulrich with some like questionable <laughs> CGI. I guess I don't know how they did that. It's strange. It was eerie. Um, and then I love. I think if you like stab the stab aspect of it, this is the ultimate stab sequel because it t- literally takes place on a stab set and. It has my favorite scene of the entire franchise, besides maybe the you know opening scene from the original, but the scene where she is being chased through a, essentially a model of her childhood home. With a big Creed poster in her bedroom. Yeah, and just something about that I thought was <laughs> yes. so interesting, like like the trauma. Like I couldn't imagine you went through this traumatic thing and now you're being chased in the Hollywood version of what your bedroom looks like. Like it's- wild all that stuff really worked for me and then the other major thing is parker posey she's a blast in this she's the best part of that movie she's the best part gale and gale action it's amazing she's in her full like josing the pussycats mode where she's like playing at a cartoonish level like three miles above everybody else but it fits the film so well and i and also like the whole like cotton leary like the whole talk show cheesiness you know, even yeah. though it only lasts for a little bit, it's that's, um super entertaining. That's the one deviation in the cold open. It's like most of the phone calls are a girl alone in a kitchen and Ghostface is like super misogynistic over the phone, usually engages them in horror trivia. Yeah. But in this one, because it's an L.A. movie, it's in traffic and Cotton is the one that has to um, yes. answer these questions. He's in traffic and like the and Ghostface like Blair's Creed to lure her out of the shower. She's like, like, it's a very Creed heavy movie. But the other big element, though, for this that worked is kind of the subtext of, mm-hmm. yeah, the movie talks a lot about these Hollywood producers who yeah, abuse women because they want to get these parts. And I, I was reading quite a bit about like, obviously Harvey Weinstein produced one through four. Right. Yeah. He, and he was a big part of dimension films, which made all the, and so like, I don't want to say that the writer was directly talking, but you can't help but make that, jump in I mean, your mind possible it was like an open secret in hollywood that he was an abuser and like had that casting couch culture which the movie is about yeah i don't think it talks about those things particularly well though yeah i wouldn't say that it tackles it well necessarily it interesting but it's interesting it's giving us hints and it it turned her into a psychopathic slut was kind of like right. the trajectory that her but, character was but, given in retrospect which did not sit right the way i but the way i kind of started to think about it was like okay Harvey Weinstein or whatever douchebag producer uh-huh. had to have like greenlit this thing and signed off on all this stuff. So in a way, it's like a weird defense of that. That's what was icky about it to me. It was almost yeah. defending like that's just how it is. Girls come looking for a job, and this yeah. is what Shit. you get. And like that, I didn't really pick up on since that. he's the one with the money, he gets to decide. So that subtext was interesting. The like meta stuff, like with the sound studio and her house and the Parker pose. It just like, to me was the most interesting thematically of the entire franchise. And there's a lot of like interesting, like celeb, kind of cameos Jane and Silent Bob I hated that one that one I was like oh no why we have Carrie Fisher yeah um, she's fun and Patrick Dempsey as a detective the one that made me go oh my god holy shit was Roger Corman yeah Roger Roger Corman on the front porch of the fake house I was like oh I was like a little kid, like seeing like um, a pro wrestler in real life. Starstruck. Yeah, I was. (laughs) I just did not expect him at all in this context. See, it's definitely not the scariest. No, it's it's the goofiest. It's the goofiest. It feels like a fun house. Like it's exciting. You never know what's going to come out the mystery bag. And a lot of the stuff you said you like as far as like with technology and talking about sequels, then reboots. 
never never really, sucks at that it sucks at that <laughs> so it's it's very interesting that it doesn't do any of the things that the other great scream films do necessarily it's just like so unique it is unlike any of the other ones in the franchise that's why i liked it maybe it'll be like nightmare 2 like when we watch that by itself yeah the gay one i was like yeah. i like this better on its own than i liked it in sequence with the other movies um and this one scream 3 is like I'm trying to follow the thread of like each one is about some horror trend or like some horror trope. And I felt like two talking about the rules of sequels was pretty weak. Like it didn't really have much to do with that actually. Cause there's not much except, you know, they say, Oh, you got to up the violence and, and then even the stuff with the trilogy in this one. Yeah. That was really just a throwaway. Strange. Like, yeah. He's like, all bets are off in the trilogy. What does that even mean? But I guess it's getting more at the heart of like the darkness of the industry itself which i think is an interesting place to take it when you don't have as much time between films there are three sequels that i think are fine and not very good but i don't dislike them they're just they're just fine which is two three and five i think one and four are like the classics (laughs) did y'all like four at all because that was the one that really spoke to me I liked it. I liked them all. Like, I don't think any of them are bad movies. I um, really liked five too. Yeah. I liked parts of five. I thought, you know, it's bookended with the smartest stuff. Yeah. Like it's bookended with the remake of the original cold open, but with these like automated home technology things. So like, it's like, Oh, I'm protected. Cause I can um, lock my doors with my smartphone. Right. And like, you know, th- that's a fun update to that. And then you have the rules of the reboot cool or the uh, legacy sequel. Like remake half remakes we've been getting in recent years, and then the party remake at the end is really fun. Where like the character is watching the fake Jamie Kennedy from the Stab movies do the rules of the Stab movies, and she's telling him to look out behind. Like there's this like Russian nesting doll effect of that. Yeah, the middle is so boring. These kids have no charisma. I don't need to see them in another movie. Like I have no interest <laughs> well, in those I, kids I, whatsoever. That's why I thought the fourth one was good because I thought the core group of girls and that one was were very good yeah i agree well i guess we should i am kind of interested to because you just say your favorite are obviously one four and five i think or no you're saying one i think one and four are great mm-hmm. like i'd put those up as like you know four star solid slasher movies i think the other three i don't have a strong ranking of them i think they're kind of interchangeable like they're fine but the cumulative effect of the series especially the more they get about stab is what makes it interesting. And you know, fourth one has the stabathon where they're watching all the stab movies in uh-huh. person and they're like really tearing apart the stab rules and the cold open is this fake out psychedelic rug pull where like you keep thinking that you're watching the start of Scream mm-hmm. 4 but you're really watching Scream 6, 7 and 8 as it keeps like resetting the yeah. clock. I found I found all that like really fascinating. So two, three, and five, I think, are fine, but I don't have much of an opinion on them. It is hard to kind of rank these because, I mean, we've already talked about three. Three is like a personal favorite. I think objectively, four is kind of a return to form. And I thought the latest one was a little messy, not the tightest story, but it ends with a bang. And it, like you said, it starts and ends with a bang. And it kind of redoes what you liked about three where like you're at this house party and you don't realize until like 15 minutes into the house party that you're in the house where the original murders were done at the house party. And like that reveal is really fun. We're like, oh no, I'm like reliving the trauma again. And the kind of swerve at the end of five, like the reveal, one of the people actually did surprise me. Yeah. So it got me on that level too. But I think two is probably the weakest. It's the one we're talking about the least. Sydney yeah. goes to college. She makes some new friends. They yeah. get killed. There's so many movies that take place like in college with this whole like slasher sorority vibe that it kind of blends in with them. It, it does to have me. some good that scene in the um, recording booth where like you can't hear the audio. I thought can't that hear was, the scream. Oh. Can't hear the scream. I thought <laughs> that was clever. I just thought that the reveal was really bad in the second one. Which they switched halfway through. Right, because the script got leaked. <laughs> so they had to like change the entire movie. I guess that's where I'm coming from is like, I feel that rushedness with the second one where it's like, oh, fucking anybody can be the killer. Who cares? Like, yeah. like let's switch them out. 
And I feel that with a lot of these where like the whodunit doesn't matter that much to me. The overall story arc of the characters from movie to movie don't mean that much to me. Like I'm really in it for the stab films and like how those are integrated. I'm hoping that the next one it's going to be that like Billy Loomis somehow had like 12 children <laughs> and they all have a little cult in the woods <laughs> and they try to get revenge for Dude, their I, dad. <laughs> I swear on this last one, cause you know, the two killer thing has been done already. Yeah. I was like, what if it's literally her entire group of friends? Yes. What if it's like four <laughs> or five of them? A bunch What's, of people. Right. That's I literally, cause they did a so, such a good job of like, Okay, it could be this person, that person. I don't know. I, is it two killers in every single one? I didn't I was, clock that. Has it ever now. been more than two? It's always two, right? It's never been more than. Yeah. It's never no, just one either. It's one in the th- third, third one. one. Okay, which is a, oh, another yeah. pretty lame reveal too. But in most of them, it's it's <laughs> it's two, which is crazy. You're right. Yeah, it's crazy that I keep getting tricked by that. I'm like, I oh know. my god, there's two of them. I want <laughs> right, that, more. That's like, I knew there was gonna be a second one, but then I was like, oh wait. Now there's going to be a third, and that's going to really yeah. And they just didn't do it. I'm like, I don't know. There's more more ways they can go with it. I I did like the whole um you know Billy Loomis as a sort of half ghost ghost like but like a good ghost. Yeah, why are we of? why are we rooting for this misogynist killer from the first? I film? know. <laughs> I like too that it, it's this triumphant <laughs> moment when she like at the very end taps into her inner serial kill and just stabs. But for this the dude, good of the group. Yeah, but it's like a 30 times. Yeah, it's like a triumphant moment. <laughs> I know. You're like, oh my God. It geez. made me feel weird. You see, I was, officer, I, I stabbed know. him 50 times in the face in self defense. Self defense. Yeah, that's not going <laughs> to fly. <laughs> yeah, she's just going to town. Uh, I don't understand how, like, Sydney Prescott has survived all these tabs. Well, she survived because she's barely involved at all anymore. Like, a lot of people were freaking out a couple months ago that, like, Nev Campbell has said, like, they're not paying me enough. I don't want to come back for six. Yeah. And maybe that's just contract negotiations. She'll figure Ugh, it she's out. She's probably waiting for a Wild Things reboot. I like her a lot in general. And yeah. I think she's fucking excellent in the first movie. But, like, as these have gone on, I don't need her and Gail and Dewey to keep coming back. Like, I need Gail. I think Gail's my favorite really? character. Ugh. What does she bring into the table anymore? <sighs> a new face. <laughs> yeah, well, the face that's is new. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just want her to get more and more fillers every year. And then by the time we're on like the re you know, like the sixth or seventh one, like she is just she is very full real, cat face. real housewives of Woodsboro, especially that's in awesome. uh three where her and the deputy are like going back and forth like <laughs> Caddy arguing over Dewey. <laughs> yeah. Like he's like the hottest ticket in town. Uh <laughs> I don't know. I really hate to say it, but I kind of wanted them all to die. And I agree. They're not bringing anything one. to the table anymore. Like right, just like let's really start new and do something shocking and just kill all the old. They cast. can take them all, but don't take Gil. It's also adding another fifteen twenty minutes to the movie where it's like stuff that really has nothing to do with the plot. Especially when her and Gail show up at the end of five and they're like saving the kids from the house party. The movie would be no different <laughs> no. if they weren't there. Like it would be the exact same plot. Yeah. But 15 minutes shorter, which would be a benefit because the movie's way too long. That's one thing I noticed watching these. They're all a little too long. Every single one of these is almost two hours. The first one's tight. First one's tight. Fourth one, even though I love it, is a little flabby. You're uh, right. They're but they're, like they're all hours. in that like hour 52 hour. Well, you keep adding more and more characters every time. It's like, well, we got to bring these people back you're and we got to have new ones for the new kids. Right. You're adding more characters and you're doing the whole like, they're not really dead. Now we have to shoot them in the head. Right. So you're just waiting for this like dead body to get up for them to then shoot. Well, I think also you need to have that initial setup scene, which has to be, you know, 10 to 15 yeah. minutes. And that right there is like, cutting into your run t- or adding to your runtime. Do y'all have a favorite cold open from the sequels? Cuz the first Ooh. one's obviously the best. Yeah. I think yeah. the second one I really like the movie theater. I I that do, one's good. I agree with that. That one's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that one and the fake out from 4. I I really like the like rug pull from 4. I think it's a fun it just kind of like breaks your brain. You're like, I don't even know what I'm watching anymore after the second <laughs> or third time. <laughs> I think my favorite kill though, um I think yeah, the second one where a beam like goes through the car and takes this dude's head off. And it was like the grisliest, most gory thing I've seen in like quite some time. Like, oh my God, that is. <laughs> and then she's got to climb over his body to get out the front 
Oh, yes. Door. Well, I guess that speaks to the movie actually paying attention to the rules, quote unquote, where like in the second one, he says the, the kills have to be more elaborate. And that, that it definitely has a more elaborate kill than all the stabbings from the first one. True. And like we said, stuff with the sound booth. Yeah. And I don't know. And then it ends on a stage. The stage feels like a half step towards the on the set of the stab films from the third one. Um, where like that really like falls through more there. Four, I just think had more to talk about. Like it had the J horror cycle to talk about. Found footage because you know the characters were like filming mm-hmm. their every step. Um, I just feel like it had a lot that that decade between three and four. I feel like just gave it enough breathing room that like actually be like a temperature check on horror as an industry. And I think the next one, which is coming out in March of next year, is actually at a disadvantage. Like, what did five not talk about that six could tackle? You know, like what's changing that much in four? I like the part they talk about torture porn and right. She hates it. like that was definitely a very specific trend that happened in that 10 year span yeah they didn't really have any pandemic comments in the fifth one right true i think that probably might be something that they poke around with i don't know because that's kind of like the theme we don't need it but i feel like they're gonna do it there are pandemic horror films for sure that is its own little subgenre. so you could do that yeah quarantined with ghostface or something i don't know but if we've already done elevated horror at least in discussion i don't know that the movie really aped the uh style of elevated horror in any way but like it's already been discussed i actually thought the fourth one felt a little bit more like an elevated horror it just looked like it not even that it had more money it was just more artistically shot than the second and third one it was slicker slicker it kind of brought it back from the goofy stuff from two and three like brought it back to like the actual like violence is upsetting to watch basics that we were talking about west craven brought to the first one like it brought back that like oh god that's really upsetting like the kills fucking me up a little bit on top of all the meta humor and i don't i don't think that four is actually that funny like it actually like takes the like commentary a little more seriously than some of the other ones which might be why i appreciate it a lot yeah also i feel like kevin williamson was like airing his grievances with horror again in that one the same way he was in the first like the second and third felt like we're really invested with these characters. We love them. Let's see where their lives went after this trauma. Four feels more like I actually think horror is very tropey and boring and stale. I've seen it all. I'm very jaded. Here's like all the things that have happened with this like remake cycle, especially like that one was tackling the Platinum Dunes era where like the Texas Chainsaw remake and like uh prom night remake and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, that Nightmare on Elm Street remake that everyone hated, uh, which I have not seen, but I've heard it's I awful. Seen it everyone has seen it. Like it was, it was, it just had a lot more to like complain about, and it felt like a very complainy movie, mm-hmm. which I felt like was a spirit from the first one that's kind of lost in the rest of these. Like you've kind of gotten away from Scream as like I'm actually smarter than horror. I've cracked the code on it. Here's like what it does. I feel like four returns to that, and two and three are more like the continued adventures of Sydney and her pals. Right, which which is like <laughs> I, I was thinking about Scream in comparison to other big horror franchises, and like I I think it's a really unique filmography. Yeah, or ser- like if you go to like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, first one Stone Cold classic, but there's really varying degrees of quality throughout the. And Friday the Thirteenth is even worse. Like most of those are not even good. Yeah. But when you look at these five films as like a whole, it is definitely like one of the strongest horror franchises that I can think of. I mean, even two, which I guess we're agreeing is probably the weakest. It's the least interesting. Least yeah. is definitely better than some Jason movies I've oh, seen. For and sure. definitely some Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. Yeah. Like a lot of the Halloweens have been stinkers. So Yeah. You know, I don't know. It holds up very well. Yeah, I think we're just, I don't know, like, whenever I was trying to find out, like, which one is my favorite and which one do I not like? I kind of started thinking, like, I'm being really harsh on judging this because <laughs> they're all really good. Yeah, it's like, it's a high bar and there's a yeah. consistency to it because there's one person who's, like, in control of it. And you don't get that with a lot of horror franchises. Like, Don Mancini with the Child's Play movies is the only mm-hmm. one I could think of other than this where, like... Wes Craven, like, directed one through four himself. Kevin Williamson wrote, if not the entire script, 
on all four of them, at least partially wrote those. Mm-hmm. I think he, I think he was a little busy when three came out, which m- might be why it has a different tone. Five is the first one where Craven was no longer alive for the production. Yeah. Um, so it has moved on to other hands, but maybe that is like part of the consistency. It's just like, there is a clear creative voice behind it, yeah. which is pretty remarkable for something that is so commercial. Like these are very slick big Hollywood commercially produced horror films. Well, and having that one person in charge is probably a huge reason. Cause if you think about like Halloween, for instance, like because it's gone through so many directors who have different ideas of what is Canon and is he a supernatural entity or is he just a man? Like they can't even figure it out between films. What's what. So that's why they feel so tonally like, inconsistent and storytelling is inconsistent whereas each scream feels like a step in one cohesive vision and like you said earlier the ghost face being interchangeable really opens it up to like yeah there's a lot of places it could go in future sequels yeah it can be someone who is related to sydney it could be someone who's not related to her and that really enjoys stab movies it could be someone who's just obsessed like it could be anybody as long as they can put the mask on and get that voice changer I do love what a klutz he is as a villain. If you think about him in every film, he's always falling over something, oh, yeah. tripping over around, his skirt, tripping. Yes. And he's the like rope. total opposite of a Mike Myers type figure. And it's funny too. And a lot of times he'll re- reveal who the killer is. And it's like a girl that weighs a hundred pounds. <laughs> and you think back to the other scenes, like, wait a second, you over lifted a, I like to think that, <laughs> the mask just brings out some evil powers. The misogyny. Cause like, it really is that like black Christmas, like phone call thing where it's like, he says some fucking vile shit to these women over the phone. Yep. It's like really upsetting to listen to. Yeah. Uh, and it's coming out of every one of these characters. <laughs> Half the time it's women. <laughs> yeah. That mask just does something to you, man. <laughs> Would you recommend this as a Halloween watch? Like to go through the series. Is that like a satisfying run through or is it too, samey from like movie to movie oh i think it's like total halloween material it's like a good primer right because it's about horror it might be fun to like pair to watch all five and pair it with a popular horror movie that came out the same year and see if there's some interesting comparisons to be made if i was gonna program i would say one four and five would make a great halloween trilogy because it's like kind of horror through the ages and like different tropes, but like three by itself might be interesting. on like yes. a different program with like a different set of movies. Yeah. Never skip three. <laughs> I'm not skipping <laughs> it. Uh, two may be a skippable though. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I think I would say, yes, it's skippable, but like once you're like amped up for scream, you can be like, all right, I'm gonna go watch. Yeah, you're going to be a completionist. I yeah. will say like, I have no real investment and Jamie Kennedy, but I was a little pissed that he got killed in the second one. Really? Were you happy that he came back in three? In video form? I guess I wasn't happy that he came. My thing was, like, he was supposed to be the voice of the rules. Yeah. And, like, they kind of knew that in the third one. Well, we got to bring him back. He gives the rules. It would have been cool if he, like, stayed consistent in every movie. Yeah, I agree. That would have been really neat if he would kind of been like, actually, here's what's happening and here's the rules to this. Like he would always somehow like find his way up to five. I guess where I disagree with that a little bit is like four and five in particular add an extra layer where they're both about fans who've gotten out of control and they're about like toxic media obsessives yeah, and like people who feel like they own the stab franchise and like get to dictate where it goes and like bring it back to basics and stuff obsessed you can't really do that with jamie kennedy like he's too much of a goofball but like the last two movies four and five have been really sinister about like how horror fans and like fans in general interact with their creatives and with the content it's yeah it's like the killers are meeting on a subreddit right exactly (laughs) yeah Which I think is smart commentary because uh, I don't know if you've ever been on the internet, but everyone on it is fucking it's awful. awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they have believable. opinions that suck. <laughs> I'm generally very fond of this series. If I said any flippantly negative things about an individual movie, it doesn't matter because overall I thought it was all a great watch in a yeah. row. Got me excited for Halloween. Excited to watch some like spooky movies with y'all. Next time we talk, we're doing fantasy, which I feel like is a softer lead <laughs> into the season, but it's still like... <laughs> 
It's so creepy in a way. Yeah, there's some costume ideas in there too, you know? Yeah. Oh my god, I remember whenever um the first Scream came out and like everyone had that damn ghost face costume. It's kind of funny, like it feels like they were trying to come up with a very generic like Party City Halloween mask and like anybody could be the killer because you could buy that mask anywhere. But since then, that mask has become super iconic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely bought one when I was 14. Oh, yeah. All, all the all the new metal boys in my neighborhood had it. I was one of them, but I lived in a different neighborhood. <laughs> well, which one was it where she was like in the, I guess it would have had to have been three, the costume department. That's three, it was yeah. just like rows of that mask. Of That's fun. The second one at the uh, movie premiere has the giant uh, ghost face stabbing on the outside of the building. That's awesome. Like, oh, yeah. and, like, that is really cool. Uh, yeah. And also Stabo Vision, which was a William Castle joke where yes. Ghostface flew over the audience during every kill <laughs> on a zip line. Yeah, I would love if they did something like that or like Britannia or Broad, just kind of I did go see the Tingler, the uh William Castle movie there, where like there are parts in the movie where they say that the tingler is loose in the audience and there's supposed to be like a buzzer on your seat that like shocks you a little bit to like scare you to think that the tingler's like what? on your butt, but the Britannia was not hooked up to the uh, Tingler technology the oh. way that the stab <laughs> movies were. Still a fun experience. Lots though. of lonely butts. Yeah. Well, next week on the show, you know, I had not seen the Scream sequels. I'm going to tackle another blind spot for me as I get more into the spooky season. I'm making everyone watch the first original Jacob's Ladder. Ooh. Ah. Never seen it before. Real good. Yeah. Not even really sure what it's about. Just looks spooky and... I'm trying really hard to appreciate a Adrian Lynn movie at some point in my life. I've failed so far. Uh, <laughs> I'm really like lukewarm it. on the guy. Because you like Videodrome, right? Love it. For One some reason, movies. I always put Jacob Slatter and Videodrome in the same pile. You're selling me. <laughs> I was expecting it to be more like, uh, what's the Wes Craven movie with the zombies? Oh, Serpent in the Rainbow? Yeah, that's more yeah. what I was expecting. But it, It's more like a haunting meditation on yeah. PTSD, and it's it's pretty spooky, too. I genuinely have no idea what this movie is about. It looks cool, spooky. Cool. I got it from a thrift store recently. I was like, this is the, the season. <laughs> this is it's finally happening. And in the meantime, check out written reviews on swapflix.com. Hi, everybody.